Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, it's not just the, the absence of light. It is a darkness that you can feel. Not touch. They've all tried to touch it. It's not tangible, but it, it is real. It's, it's a presence. Not evil. Just darkness. And it's lasted for three straight days. Beyond any cave experience that you may have ever had or, or may imagine or been through. Children at this time grasp their parents' hands. Children at this time take their, take their cues, their lack of fear, their confidence, their security from their, from their parents, and yet their parents are shaken. Three days of darkness, and all you've been left with is your imagination to go back to the weeks that have led up to this. It started with your great Nile River turning red, blood in every stream, every canal, every waterway, every well, every pot, every cistern, every jug, everywhere you stored water. For seven days, everything flowed and poured red. The stench by the day three of the fish and the amphibians that lived in the water and the ponds and the rivers, they're now dead and, and they're on shore. And the entire country has turned apocalyptic, followed then by frogs. Frogs coming out of the water, and in every place in your house, inside the house, outside the house, it's filled with frogs. Every bed, every pillow, every cupboard, every cup. And I don't know where they came from. It's, it's impossible to get them out. It's just, it's just frogs throughout the land, followed by gnats or mosquitoes, where you have to cover your face with a garment. They're in your eyes, they're in your ears, they're in your nose, in your mouth when you try to breathe or, or when you try to eat. And it's impossible to escape the horde, followed by flies, of course, flies, followed by that day when, when you woke up and you went to the fields and you saw the livestock, some standing, many laying dead, those in the pens, those in the corrals, just death and disease, followed by boils, boils on animals, boils on people, which was followed by hail, and not just hail that would strip the trees and, and ruin the crops, but, but hail that was accompanied by, by thunder and, and fire from the heavens. Then came the locusts, those that devour every green thing that was left after the hail. Do you see what I mean? It's been weeks of, of living through these apocalyptic changes. Something cataclysmic has gone wrong, and, and now you're left in darkness just to ponder, what in the world? is happening. Pharaoh will call Moses in the darkness. If you and your people want to go celebrate outside our borders, then, then go, but you're going to leave all your possessions here. And Moses says, no deal. Everything we have leaves with us or nothing. Well, then you're not going to leave the land. And Moses replies, so be it. And God speaks to Moses and says, there have been nine plagues. Number 10 will end this. Number 10 will be a game changer for you and your people for centuries to come. It's been 400 years. 400 years the Israelites, these, these Hebrew people, have found themselves in bondage 
in the greatest country on the face of the earth at the time, in, e in Egypt. It's been 400 years and they've started crying out to God. It's been 400 years and they've come back to the promise that we're supposed to be a great nation. We're supposed to be a blessed nation. And this don't look anything like that. It's been 400 years of that nation coming, that little family of patriarchs coming and, and being in this great incubator of Egypt where the Egyptian people see themselves as gods and goddesses. And so they will not touch the Hebrew people. And the little band of Hebrew people have grown and grown and multiplied there. And they won't touch the Egyptian people. So for 400 years, this Hebrew people have been able to grow and expand and expand. So much so that the numbers for this time of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt were somewhere between 600 and 700,000, scholars tell us. Some scholars put it over a million. And Pharaoh has realized we have a group of people inside our country, inside our borders, that if they ever turned on us, it wouldn't go well. So they've ripped all the freedoms away from the Israelites. They've ripped them of all their privileges. They've enslaved them. They've put them into slave labor. They've beaten them. They've oppressed them. And yet the Hebrew people continue to grow despite their oppression. So Pharaoh decided, okay, we're going to take all the baby boys and we're going to throw them in the river. And this is where the story started. We'll eradicate an entire nation by taking every male child. And the God of heavens rolls up his sleeves and says, enough, it's go time. Yes, he's a God of love, and, and the 10th plague is going to be hard to understand, but because he is a God of love, he is also a God of justice as well. And justice demands that this can't go on any longer. This 10th plague, it's going to be a game changer. Now, I know you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Walt, you know, we've spent over 40 weeks in the Gospel of Mark. What are you doing telling the Exodus story? This sounds like Exodus in the Old Testament. Well, I need you to journey there with me because we got to go to the second book of the Bible, to Exodus 12, to understand this table, to understand the last night of Jesus' freedom, to understand where we're going to pick up in Mark in a few minutes, or maybe more than a few minutes, to understand Jesus here with his disciples in the upper room. We have to go back over 1,400 years before Jesus to understand the history behind this table. Otherwise, we will miss everything that happens next in the upper room. This table starts in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Okay, there's a lot to read, but let's just stop for a minute. God says, look, I'm going to do something that's going to change your calendar. I'm about to do something that from now on, this will be the first of your year. I'm about to do something that your entire calendar is going to go back, and it's going to be reset, like hitting a reset button. Isn't that cool? This is the God of the brand new, the God of new beginnings. This is a God who sees bondage and, and slavery and oppression and brokenness and says, when I step in, you're going to reset your story by what I do in your lives. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of, show of hands this morning, but, but how many of you ever have had a reset in your story? How many of you say, this is where I was broken, this is where I was in bondage, this is where I was in oppression, and then I found him, and he reset. Not just my calendar. It's not the, the old book starting again. It's, it's a brand new book. It's a game changer. And for Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, this 10th plague to free their people it's going to be reset. It's going to be a new beginning. It's going to be a game changer. 
Verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Did you catch that? Did you see what's happening here? You know, parents, have you ever taken an animal into your house for three or four days with, with kids present? What happens? You get the picture? You know, by the second hour, the kids have named that animal, right? You know, if it's a lamb, they might name it Fluffy. You know, hey, here's Fluffy. Dad, can we keep Fluffy? Dad, can I sleep with Fluffy? Dad, can Fluffy play with me? Can we feed Fluffy? And you're like, oh man, we're not supposed to get attached to this. And after four days in your house taking care of it, don't leave it outside. Don't put it outside in a pen. This is to become a part of your family. This is to become personal. What God's about to do is to be personal. And God said, I want you to take care of it. I want it to be personal. This sacrifice isn't going to be done out in the desert. It's not going to be done down at the synagogue or, or the church. Your hands are going to do this. This is going to be personal for you. And so after four days of being with your family, after four days of this becoming part of your household, I want this to be felt by you. I want you to take it, and I want you to cut the animal's throat and paint the sides of your door and the, the top of it with the blood. I want you to apply this to your home, and then I want you to walk out. This will change your calendar. It will change your home. It will change your future. Here's what he said. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods, small g, all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. Yeast symbolized sin and corruption. On the first day, hold a sec sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare the food for everyone to eat. This is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. 
This is not just a, a game changer. I want this to be on your calendar for the rest of your life. I want this to change your calendar. I want every year to be a, a week-long festival where everyone takes off of work and, and everyone focuses on what I'm doing here and remembers what I did here. I want this to be a remembrance where you go back and you, you remember your bondage, your oppression, your brokenness, your slavery, and a God who ripped through the natural order to bring you to himself. I want this remembered, and here's how and when. And for 1,400 years before Jesus, this table was set in the exact same way. If you've ever joined in what we now call a Seder dinner or a Seder meal, Seder just means order. It means order. Everything has its exact place, its exact mixture, its exact time. If you've ever seen a Jewish Passover Seder meal, this is it. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of, of attending Seder meals with a rabbi and his family and his congregation in New Orleans, Rabbi David Goldstein. Uh, he, was the, he was a reserve Navy chaplain, and he became a very good friend of mine when I was in seminary. I put up with this young seminary and asking questions and stuff. But uh, David was the, the officer that I chose to commission me when I became a chaplain. That's how special and dear he was to me. But we celebrated the, the Seder meal with, with his congregation a couple times there in New Orleans. And we've had satyrs here in the park since I've been here. Uh, many of you that have been here for years, you can remember, remember those. Nowadays, you know, there's a lot added to it. There's, there's eggs in it. There's a shank bone. But for 1,400 years, once a year, at the beginning of the calendar, the Jewish people would come with their families. They would sit around a large table. They would have a lamb that was slain that day and roasted in the middle. They would have the, the unleavened bread uh, bread that didn't have time to rise. They're in a hurry, remember? They're trying to get out of Dodge. It's not doughy to remind you that the people left in haste. Every table would, would have the maror, the, the bitter herbs with the, with the horseradish. They'd, they'd probably have parsley there. And you would take the bitter herbs and we would dip it in salt water. And that would remind you of the tears that you shed when you were a slave in Egypt. It would have a, a bowl of something called haraseth. And it's, it's a mixture of apples and sometimes pears and, and, and nuts. And they're mixed together with maybe a little bit of wine. And it looks a lot like mortar, the mortar that, that the Jews were using to put between the bricks as they, as they were building for the Egyptians. You would have four cups, or you'd have one cup that you, that you filled four times. It was a cup of wine. It must be wine. It's a reminder that it's a simple grape, but inside that simple grape is the potential to be the, the elixir with which kings will celebrate. It's a reminder that, that you call yourself a simple human being, but in the hands of an almighty God, you become the festival of nations. Four cups to be taken four times during the dinner because of God's promises to Moses, four expressions of deliverance. God said, I will take you out of Egypt. That's cup number one. God said, I will save you from bondage. That's cup number two. God says, I will redeem you and buy you back. That's cup number three. In cup number four, I will take you to be my people, my nation. So the wine at the table must be plentiful. There's no half glasses in the celebration. No, just, just sips there. You fill it all. In a great Jewish or, or Hebrew home, would, they would fill it past full to overflowing. This is the promise of blessings of overflowing. And for 1,400 years, your, your, your people have been say, sitting at the same table with the exact same mixtures, the same bowls, the, the same ingredients. And this wasn't just a time to remember. It was, a, it was a time to make it personal. I was broken. I was in slavery. I was in bondage. 
but this was done for me. It's not just looking at the past. It's remembering what, what took place today in order to reset the calendar. Jewish homes still celebrate the Seder, as I've said before, even to this day. And the youngest male child in the home would have been practicing for weeks. Um, Abba, Abba, what makes this, this night different from the rest? The same question asked for thousands of years. And the oldest member of the household would start the story. He would go back to the first book of the Bible, chapter 12, Genesis, where God called a man named, at that time, Abram, later changed to Abraham, a man who had nothing going for him, a man that lived in the, the back hill country, what is modern-day Iraq. It was Babylon at the time. Joshua 24 tells us that he and his family were idol worshipers. You know, he's an idol worshiper who's in his 70s at that time. He doesn't have any kids, and he's got nothing to leave behind. When he's done, his line is finished. It's over. And God shows up in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, leave your country, your people, your father's household, to go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the oldest member of the, of the family in the table there, he'll go back 2,160 years and say, we are here today because God chose to come to earth. And so he created a people out of Abraham. And he, he would show what the type of God that he was, not like the other small g gods of the other countries, of the other nations. And, and he picked the biggest loser he could find, a guy named Abraham, and said, if I can make a nation out of this guy that lives in Iraq and, and worships idols, who's at the end of his life, people are going to say, there must be a God. If you don't have your life notes by this time, you need to pull those things out. And I put your life notes on there, Abraham. I just read Genesis 12. Well, in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, the covenant is given to Abraham. And he will walk out of his tent at God's prompting one night, and, and, and God will say, hey, Abram, can you count the stars? Um, no, I can't, Lord. He will say, well, I, may, I will make you a nation even greater than the number of stars. He said, this is what it's going to be like. And Abram said, well, wait a minute. How are you going to make a nation out of me? I'm, I'm 90 years old at this point. He said, I'm not married to some 21-year-old either, and it's not polite to say a woman's age, uh, she, but she's, she's right there up there with me. And God said, I know. You're about to make me look good. And at the age of 90, God grants Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac has another boy, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 boys, the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his sons, Joseph, finds himself in slavery in Egypt, and the entire family moves there during a famine that's in, in Israel there in Palestine. And for 400 years, Egypt had been an incubator for the Israelites, not touching their people, their people not touching Egyptians. And now somewhere around a million, God is going to move them out. And it all started with that guy, Abraham. Next to Abraham in your notes, I want you to write this. A promise to be a great nation, to bless all nations. A promise to be a great nation, to bless all nations. See, God didn't intend for Israel to be a self-looking ice cream cone, okay? I use that phrase a lot. It means someone that's just focused inward, someone that's only worried about themselves and thinks they're the bee's knees. You know, it's all about me. And unfortunately, that's how Israel turned out, thinking it's all about them. No, there was a reason for creating Israel. It was so that they could bless the other nations and bring glory 
to God. Well, now we've read the Passover and, and we've read what God was doing with the lamb. We read God saying, put the blood on the door frames of the houses so that my angel might pass over. And this is something to commemorate. And so next to Passover, I want you to write a promise to save and redeem. A promise to save and redeem. That's what Passover is all about. It's what the table is about. What the four cups of promise are about. To save and to redeem. And the table goes all the way back to Abraham. To, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Egypt, through what God did, promises to save and redeem. And then their people, their people got another covenant. In Exodus 19, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, so they've been three months on the road now, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you were to say to the house of Jacob, and what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, what's that next word? Can I hear you? If. If. What God's getting ready to say is conditional, okay? That's something that's important to, to, to understand. Now, if you obey me fully... And, so there's two conditions here, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. But always keep that in mind when you're, when you're looking at this and, and interpreting this about God's promises to Israel. Because did they keep the covenant? No. Did they obey him fully? No. But he had provision. He had provision, thank God, through the cross. He said, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And the oldest member of the household will then tell the story going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to slavery to the reason why they're sitting at that table and why three months out of slavery, the promise was made to Abraham was now a promise to Moses. So next to Moses, you can write, Israel will be, a, will be a treasured possession to show other nations God. What's that sound like? That's the role of a priest. Peter, Peter echoes this when he tells the new church, he tells the church in, in, in his first letter, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, speaking to Christians. The biblical purpose of a priest was to show people God, to show people the love and the, and the character of God. He said, I'll have a nation, I'll have a people to do that. And people will keep, they'll keep their eyes on you as you live separate, as you live different, as you show the light of my kingdom. And this is how God deals with people. And then the oldest member of the household, the oldest member at the table would, would walk his family through, basically telling and saying, we're a part of something that goes all the way back to Abraham and what happened to Isaac and Jacob and in Egypt and, and through Moses. And then he'd talk about the prophets and the priests and the kings. And then we'd come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God, speaking to King David, says this, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Next to David, you can simply write this. His throne will rule forever. Now, as we've looked at, as we've already seen, as we've already seen, as we've, as we've studied Mark over the last few months, you know, they didn't really understand. They thought that was going to be a literal earthly kingdom. They didn't understand that that, that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And it wasn't an earthly kingdom that he was talking about. 
It was a heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that will last forever has to be a heavenly kingdom. No earthly kingdom lasts forever. If you study world history, you know that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Every power that's been world dominant has fallen at some point. So David is, is promised that through his line, the throne will rule forever. Someone from the line of Judah will come. And for 1,400 years before Jesus came, the history of the table was celebrated in every Jewish home the exact same way, the same words, the same prayers. And then at the end, they would sing the Psalms, the, the five Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. This is called the Halal. And we come to that night. As three million people are crowding into Jerusalem, according to some estimates, everyone's coming to celebrate what happened in Egypt. They're coming to sacrifice the lamb in the temple and then take it home. And this is the scene that God sent his son into, riding on the, on the back of a donkey that week. Those seven days at this time, this time where you were filled with, with more patriotism, more nationalism, you're set on more freedom than ever before. And for the last three years, there's been a guy that, that rumor says can walk on water. He can, he can touch the diseased and the molecules in their body rearranged and, and they're healed. One who can cast out demons, one who can raise the dead. And on this Passover celebration, Jesus comes riding in. And it's no wonder that the, that the crowds are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. We've seen the last three days, it's taken us several weeks to cover those, those days in Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We've seen him being attacked verbally by these religious groups that have tried to trip him up. And we've seen the answers that he gave them that basically shut their traps. We've seen them trying to, to trap him in the temple courts. And now his disciples are starting to get concerned. It's, it's near the end of the week. Where do we do this table, Master? It's the time where we're supposed to sit around the table and celebrate the Passover. We're following you. Where do, where do you want to do this table? And this is where we get back. It's where we get back to Mark chapter 14. And you say, whoa, man, was that the intro? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Mark 14, beginning of verse 12. It simply says this. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now in the other Gospels, we're, we're given some names. Luke tells us that the two that he sent into the city, they were Peter and John. And I need you to go up to the city, he says. I want you to go up to the city, and I want you, I want you to find a, a, a guy that's carrying a, a, a water jug. You mean a man that's carrying a water jug, Jesus? Yeah, a man. That's right, I told you, a man carrying a water jug. You see, ladies, I'm not trying to be sexist, but in these times, the men didn't carry the water jug. So, so if they saw a man carrying a water jug, that's going to be out of the ordinary. He, tell, he says, see this man carrying the water jug, follow him to the house that he's going to. When the servant enters the house, you go up and you ask the owner where the preparations are to be made. And Jesus, throughout this, this, throughout this story, has made it clear that when all hell seems to be breaking loose and Satan is winning... He's the one calling the shots. He's writing the script. 
And so the two disciples, they go up to the city gate and they, they put their backs up against the wall and they start watching, okay, water jug lady, water jug woman, water jug woman. Well, there's a guy. The guy's carrying a water jug, just like the master said. And the streets are filled because you know, people wanted to be inside the city for the Passover. In fact, there's a, there's a law, there's a statute that if you live, lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you must celebrate inside the city. And so it's shoulder to shoulder, sandal to sandal, bumper to bumper as they move through the crowds. And then they, they start following this man. They follow him down two blocks up a wide road into an alley. And to the right, the road gets a little bit smaller and it twists and, and it was like a labyrinth going to the city. And finally, the man puts the water jug down and he undoes the latch on the door and he slips inside. And with a deep breath, they glance up and down the street and they go and they simply knock. We're here to see the owner. There's some hushed whispers and they're screwing around inside. And finally, a man comes into the daylight. The master wants to know where are the preparations and he shh, shh. the man hushed him up and put his hand up and he looked up the street down the street and then he says follow me he knows what's at stake if the Romans and the and the religious leaders find out that he's harboring Jesus and his disciples it's it's not necessarily safe for his family there and so they go up and they go down next to the little staircase outside the house and he takes them to an upper room on the top of his house it's a rickety stairway going up, but, but there's, this, there's a room up there, and, it, and it's covered, and it's finished, which means that this man had some wealth. He had some, some luxury. You know, people will have an upper room on their houses there in that time, but usually it's kind of open air and everything because people like to get up on the rooftop to get away from the, the heat inside the oven that their house had become in the, in the Middle Eastern sun. And he opens the door. He shows them the table that's been set. He says, I tried to get everything that you need, but, but some of the stuff is still missing, but it'll be here, it'll be here soon. And I promise that everyone will leave you alone here. And as quickly as that, he's gone away from the room, and he leaves the two disciples to make sure that the rest of the preparations are made. It's under nightfall now that Jesus and the rest join them. It says, When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he said, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And that sentence, that word, sent shockwaves through the group there in the room. We've been trying to stay away from the Roman guards. We've been trying to stick together when the religious parties have come after us. There's a price on your head out in the city streets. But with the door shut and Jesus with his 12 closest followers, he says, it's going to come from within. And they're shocked. One of us? And every single one of them is like, could it be me? Is it me? And Jesus says, it's one that I share a meal with. It's from one of the closest to me. And I know we think that, that we think that you know, everybody's going to turn immediately and look at Judas. You know, he's the one with the beady little eyes, the pointy nose, and the, and the tail coming out from underneath his, his robe. Now, that's kind of how we picture him, but that's not the way it was. Each person is asking, could it be me? Could I be the one that's going to betray Jesus? I mean, Judas, they trusted him with the money. They gave him responsibility. And so they questioned themselves. And then in verse 22, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. 
Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, tonight, for the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. You know, sometimes we get kind of hard on Peter there because we know what happened with him. But remember, Scripture says all the others did the same. And it was this night, it was at this table where it all went down. It's this table of celebrating 2,160 years since Abraham, a tradition of promise. 1,400 years from that first Passover in Egypt, after which God brought them out of bondage. It's been 1,000 years since King David and a promise that someone's going to sit on your throne forever. It's been three years of watching Jesus, watching Jesus in compassion and power, teaching and healing throughout the land. And he takes all of tradition and he ends it with truth. There's nothing wrong with traditions, but all of your history has been waiting for the truth. It's okay to have traditions, but we need to understand that Jesus is the reason for the tradition. He took all of the law and then he ended it there with love. He took all of religion and said, you're, you're trying to make yourself righteous. You can't do it. You'll kill yourself trying to make yourself righteous. I came to give you righteousness. He took all of religion. He said, this is going to be personal. This is going to be personal. I'm going to die for you. And so he picked up the unleavened bread and he snapped it. And when every family that week will be snapping their matzah and, and talking about how God broke the back of Egypt and how God split the Red Sea, he will break and said, this is always, all that stuff you've been doing for 1,400 years has been pointing forward to this night and pointing to me. This is my body, which is going to be broken. And there's a silence that's deafening in the room. You, you, don't, you don't change the script of Seder. Seder means order. Everything has its exact place, its exact wording, its exact time. And he stood up and he said, everything that's promised comes down to me. I can change it. And this cup, the one who will redeem, the God who, who will save, this is my blood. This is a new covenant. Your tradition ends today. This is a game changer that you won't get off your calendar. Folks, I grew up thinking that communion was just something that Jesus did that night in the upper room before he was betrayed with his disciples. I had no, no idea that it went back all the way back to the first book of the Bible to Abraham. What God was doing, what he did in the second book of the Bible in Exodus, and in, in bringing his people out of bondage, into promising them that they would be special to him, that they would represent him on earth. He took history and he says, it's over, it ends tonight. No one else needs to go down with this. 
We'll leave the room. We'll walk across the Kidron Valley, and we'll go up to the garden. If Rome comes to this house, if, if, if they come to arrest me within the city walls, the streets are going to flow with blood. Only one person's blood needs to be spilt. We'll take this outside the city. And so they left the room. It went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's okay to have traditions as long as you understand the truths that we can't get off of our calendar today. Tradition is what we do. Truth is what Jesus did. Who he was and why he came. And in the midst of Satan's greatest victory, in the midst of man's greatest tragedy, Jesus is calling the shots and showing that he's firmly in control. This is why the first time John the Baptist saw Jesus at the Jordan River, he yelled to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, out of all animals, you could call a great hero. Why would you call a, a, a great leader, a great hero, a lamb? was because John understood this table. John understood 2,000 years of history. John understood what the nation of Israel was waiting for. This is the sacrifice, the last sacrifice, a truly spotless lamb. No one could ever find one. This is the truly perfect lamb. There's no, been no such thing before. I mean, those of you that have been farmers or, or visited a farm, whatever, you, you know, lambs stink on both ends, right? Okay? You can't find a perfect lamb. There's no such thing as a perfect lamb. But this is the lamb that's perfect. This is the lamb that's going to be personal. This is the lamb, the blood of this God that, that's been applied to you will walk through you. This is the lamb that you have to consume because he wants to consume you. This is a game changer. This is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then that night, Jesus took the script of all history. He broke it in two, and he says, it's always been about me. It's always been pointing to me. God says you don't deserve it. You won't earn it. I know what you've done. You know what you've done. But still, I'm going to do this for you. This is the most unperfect, the, the most unholy of all nights. And he says, I'm what's holy. You're not. If you could live a better life, uh, if I could have left you a book on how, to, on how to live a better life, how to be gooder. I know that's not good English, but it's great theology, okay? He didn't leave us a book on how to be gooder, how to be better. He left us a book that said, I know you failed. I'm telling you, I know that. But here's what I did to make provision for your failure so that you can have a relationship with me. You see, giving weight to some old terms, this is grace. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is getting what you could never deserve. This, he says, I give you. I give you my body. I give you forgiveness. I give you relationship. It's not given to people who deserve it. On the contrary, it's given to people who recognize that they don't deserve it, who make it personal, and who walk through it. That's grace. You get a relationship with God and all that he is, a relationship you could never earn, that you could never be good enough for, and you could never live up to. So stop trying and just walk with him. This is mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to die for the sins of the world, your sins, so that you do not have to suffer an eternity away from the Father.
joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry at Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.